0: So So you're um, the opposite of hot takes
1: (laughs) Cold takes? (laughs) Uh, Extremely cold takes
2: So Clive Thompson
0: Yeah, he's our guest on the show this week Where do you know him from? Canada Right, but like, what does he do? He writes for Wired, New York Times Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, Christian Science Monitor, a bunch of other places He has a book called Smarter Than You Think, which came out a couple years ago It's awesome
2: and his blog is collisiondetection.net, right?
0: Yeah, and you can get his website at smarter than you think.net. And I
2: think one of the things we should talk about is how you know Clive Thompson. Like how did you guys meet up?
0: Clive and I I mean I've been reading Clive since like 2010 or 11 uh he has these this column in wired that so far as we know has been you know the longest running column in wired magazine's history which uh,
2: is an unfounded claim but may in fact be true
0: yeah it's he's been doing he hasn't missed an issue he says in almost 10 years so and they're just these like really brilliant like 600 word articles that make you think and like you still think about them days later uh so i was reading him and i was just curious about who the hell this guy was that could write like such awesome articles so i reached out to him and we for years we just could never get in touch and and then finally we were both at South by and we sat down we had like an hour-long conversation it just turned into this annual thing like this is we did it two years in a row at South by and then he's not going this year so we just decided to record it and make it like this unacknowledged and he has no idea that we're doing this but um this is in my opinion our unacknowledged annual conversation but well, we should also talk
2: about some of the new content pieces that we had Clive do that we haven't had before in the newsletter on the
0: show in the past, um, if you have been a newsletter subscriber, you would know that we do these short little vignettes in, in each of our uh, newsletters that kind of loosely are based on the show notes or the show that, that you're about to listen to. And um, so check it out if you haven't. You can subscribe at tinylettercom slash www.podcast or if you can go to www.podcast.com and subscribe in the right hand side of the page. There's this big, um, you know, subscription box, uh, but. For this one, we had Clive do some cool new segments that are only available in the newsletter. There are three new sections. One of them is repurposed. It's, you know, the the bookshelf on Product Hunt and then a picture of his actual bookshelf on Instagram. And then we have Victoria Taylor, formerly of Reddit. Uh... You know, friend of the show uh, who is sending in victoria taylor's question of the week and it's a completely random different question every week and i feel like you're all gonna love it and then also uh we had clive choose his three favorite bands and we're gonna you know include youtube videos of them
2: so, the show notes are going to be filled with the articles that we talked to Clive about, some by him, some by others. You should definitely check them out if you get the chance. Um, should we get to it? Let's get to Clive. Well, yeah,
0: what are we talking about? What, what is Clive going to talk to us about? Oh, right. I almost forgot the most important part of the show that the entire idea is based on. <laughs> uh, Clive wrote this article about ambient awareness for the New York Times Magazine in 2008 that took him nine years to write. And, you know, it, it's ironic and unintentional, but it is almost nine years since he wrote it and the article still holds up over time which is
2: kind of crazy because he talks about something that really does persist despite the apps you used to do it he talks a little bit about the timelines of people's lives as they are exposed by these microblogging apps At first it's twitter but we talk about it how it relates to snapchat and instagram
0: and all the things we're using today to do what we used to do then i mean we still do all those things the article's like a time capsule it's crazy he uses all these verbs that you know were acceptable back in 2008 that you know you would just laugh at now like twittering um and he interviews mark zuckerberg just by picking up the phone and calling him uh it might be one of the first times that he had like a really in-depth interview with the new york times this article filled
2: with names who went on to be famous
0: yeah it's it's awesome i'm not going to spoil it because we talk about it you know in detail in the show but um it's good but let's get to call so welcome Clive good to be here yeah so thanks for coming in uh, Clive and I have you know been running into each other at tech conferences for years, and you know he's he's somebody who I've respected for a long time uh, are
2: you one of the south by Southwest presences Jeff mentions regularly
1: yeah, although I confess I haven't gone uh, i haven't I've gone went last year the year before I think maybe the year before I'm not going this year I sort of sometimes go for a couple of years in a row and then i'm Kind of out of it for a few years because work intrudes. That's this year is one of those years, so I'm not going this year.
2: Is it work that you can talk about? The work that's intruding?
1: Yeah, just my new book that I'm working on, you know, um, and uh, and I just got a lot of interviews lined up that um, make it hard to get down there. Basically, it's, it's
0: always so, so funny because you you'd think that people would go down there in order to get those interviews, but
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's a little busy as a problem. It's a little hard to. Yeah, it's and... gotten very big, and I think there's that's there's some value in that. It's kind of cool. There's a lot of diversity. But uh, but it's uh, uh, it uh, it gets it gets harder to wheat you know sort of weed out the wheat from the chaff. And
0: you also you know you don't really have a nice you know quiet space to go talk and chat with someone. Not as easily, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, you have inspired me to do so many things. I actually gave a, a chat at South by last year because of a conversation that we had. <laughs> and uh, you know it's it's you know I literally said, "Why isn't there a talk about this?" Clive said, "Why don't you give that talk?" Yeah, and, sure,
2: absolutely. Know, so, what was that talk about for the uh, listeners?
0: Uh, it was all about, you know, revenue streams and publishing and, um, you know, why authors would ever go to a publisher that is looking at the author in order to, you know, provide a platform to sell the book when the publisher should be the one that's providing that platform.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It and, doesn't sound
2: dry
0: at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was kind of a cool discussion. I learned a lot. I did a lot of research. I'm glad we did it. But, you know, that's beside the point. We have Clive here today to talk about all things Clive. So why don't you, you know, start by telling us a little bit about your, your career, your background.
1: Sure. Well I am so I, I, I'm I'm uh I'm forty-seven, so I'm old enough to have kind of gotten interested in computers back when uh the first generation of personal computers arrived, right? The you know, the Commodore sixty fours, TRS eighties, the ones that you plugged into your TV. And uh so I I saw that happening. You know, my parents wouldn't buy me one because they thought I would just waste all my time playing games. <laughs> but, you know, I got access to them at school and I had friends that had them. And so I became sort of really – I was a nerdy kid and I was really interested in the fact you could program these things. You, you could get them to do things and that they could really sort of expand someone's individual capabilities, right? You know, you could – How could,
0: old were you when you were thinking that? I mean this
1: is probably 12 or 13 I guess, you know, okay. uh, is is at this age. And you know, and I saw that you know, I saw people who had you know, you know those old modems, and you could connect and talk to another, another computer far away. Um, That was interesting. So I sort of, and and I, and I, you know, I I did enough programming on them to get really interested in in the idea that machines had a certain abilities humans didn't have. You know, humans had abilities computers didn't have. They're really good at. uh, You know, brute force calculation, doing the same thing over and over and over again, lots and lots of times, they're getting bored. And that, um, and, and I, I sort of became aware, okay, so computers are interesting. But I, you know, in high school, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And so I thought, well, I'd go off and I'd uh, study, uh, you know, just a liberal arts degree, you know, English and political science. Uh, and then I would learn how to do journalism by doing the campus paper at the University of Toronto, which is what I did. That's how I learned journalism. I, you know, I wrote hundreds of stories. I was in a, a news editor at the main campus newspaper. And so by the time I graduated, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I, and I, I liked it and I tr- basically trained myself in daily journalism, right? Um, but there wasn't really any work, you know, like there was a big recession in Canada at that time. This is 1992. Newspapers hadn't really hired anyone in years, like uh, major newspapers, Globe Mail, Toronto Star. They hadn't hired anyone in 10 years. So like there was no work at all. So I ended up just doing a lot of other things to make money. I was, uh, Arts administrator with a poetry organization. I was a street musician. Uh, I uh, wow. I was a bookkeeper, uh, and uh, and I and I thought, well, you know, I st- after like a, a, some time of that, I thought, well, I still have this dream of you know being a journalist. And I know I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of good at it. Um, so I, w- I went for a year to a journalism school, but I hated it, so I dropped out. Um, and that was 1990. Uh, I guess it was 1994. And around the time I dropped out was when the internet was starting to become something that was leaking into everyday life. Like 1994 was the year that you could finally buy a home connection to the internet in Toronto. For 30 bucks, you could get 30 hours online a month. <laughs> that was a deal, basically. Yeah, did, Dial what, up.
0: What did, did they have the little like AOL CD-ROMs that you'd pick yeah, up? Yeah, uh,
1: actually, you know, it took them a little while to bring AOL to Canada. They didn't really? have it yet. So these were all local operators. Okay. in fact, the first one I went to was this like kid. He was like 18 and he had opened up the first like cheap internet service provider, and I, you had to walk a in. Genius! You had to walk into his office, and it was like a tiny office, about you know <laughs> six feet by six feet by ten feet, with like about four five hundred modems all plugged in. And when you dialed in, you dialed into one of those modems and hooked into his trunk. And uh, and I gave I handed over my money, and you know for the first month or two, you know, and for a contract. And that's how I got. Um, it's called Interlog. He did very well for himself. Very yeah. smart kid.
0: So. It sounds like, uh, what's the AMC show that came out last year? Um, uh, halt and Catch
2: Fire? Yes. Yeah, no, it's yes.
1: To- it was totally Halt and Catch Fire. So, so I, so the, you know, I sort of, I could see the internet becoming, you know, part of everyday life and all these things that i'd seen a decade earlier you know with the beginning of computers we're now going to be we're now going to really hit the mainstream and they're going to be even more consequential because now it's not just about computers sort of amplifying our individual abilities it's changing the way we communicate and allowing us to communicate in new ways and so i found that incredibly interesting and uh i decided that was you know that was sort of what i wanted to write about i had actually thought in college you know when I'm training myself to be a journalist, I thought, well, what did journalists write about? You know, serious journalists write about you know politics and stuff like that. But um, but I, I you know I'm a, I was a nerd, and I realized, well, this thing that's coming along, the internet, is going to change, uh, is going to reach into every facet of human everyday life. It's and you gonna,
0: you picked up on this in the mid '90s.
1: Yeah, in '94, I could you could you know you spent like five minutes online with a connection at home, and you you could see. You know, alright, this is going to be big for the way we do business. This is going to be the way we communicate with each other socially. You know, you could, you could imagine this is going to change things like, um, where, where we get information from, uh, you know, you know, what we, what we thought of as a reliable authority, you know, the way culture and arts propagated. You could see all that, you know, because I was downloading software and I was downloading, mm-hmm. um, early pictures and I was going on to Usenet and seeing political arguments and whatnot. So, you know, in a way I could, everything I saw then is, 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 not a lot different than what you're seeing now. The forms have changed, but like the that impact you could you know, if you were there looking at that in the early days of it, like I could I I, I just got Enormously tantalized by this.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, history repeats itself. You know? It re- it really
1: does. And and I was also, you know, I'd studied literature, and I'd studied art, and I'd studied a bit of political science. So like, you know, I was interested in. I wasn't really interested in the technology for the technology's sake. Like, I was I was nerdy enough to be interested in the in the technical aspects of this. You know, I I sort of read up on like the architecture of the internet. I was interested in how it worked. But what I was really interested in is how it was going to work itself into everyday life. And that's what I decided I wanted to write about. And so, you know, because I still – really, no one would still hire me. I was just – I decided, well, I'll freelance. And that really means writing for magazines, Mm -hmm. you know, writing for – uh, whoever you, you can convince to let you write a story. And I didn't know anyone, you know, in journalism at all, so I, it was really just starting from the bottom. Like, I was writing for, like, those little city weeklies. They've sort of vanished, but they were, there were more of them in the 90s, and that's where you could sort of begin how your you career. They wouldn't pay, yeah, exactly. They wouldn't pay very much money, but you could write, like, you, know, you could write two or three thousand words, you know? And so you could, I, I could learn how to, like, Investigate something so that you're going to write a meatier, longer piece, and and train myself that way. And I wrote for smaller, you know, political magazines. Uh, um, there's a magazine in Canada called This Magazine, which I wrote for, and eventually spent a year and a half editing. And I wrote for like magazines in the U.S. that were smaller, you know, in these times and stuff like that. And uh, and and I and I really just I came in from the margins, basically. That's the way yeah. that worked. That I I started getting kind of mainstream work, you know, that paid better when I uh, met some folks involved in the business press in Canada, so sort of like the uh, you know, the equivalent of Forbes and Fortune in Canada. And they, they, they it was like in 1995. They knew the internet was this big thing, but they didn't have any reporters.
0: Is that the Canadian Business Journal? Uh,
1: it's, well, it's, it, there's two, the two big ones. There's called Canadian Business and there's one called the Report on Business okay. Magazine. Report on Business Magazine is the Globe and Mail. And, and they, they wanted to report on the internet, but they just, they had all these boomer reporters who weren't that interested in it or kind of baffled by it. So I started writing for them and they'd paid, you know, money that crinkled, right? So that's mm-hmm. when I began to realize, oh, I could actually, you know, I could make a living doing this. And that was really the beginnings of it, it was in the business press, actually. Do but, you
2: remember the first time you got a story and you've actually felt like a journalist? Because I would imagine that's a big transition. Yeah, yeah. Way. I mean,
1: I felt I think I felt like a magazine journalist, I guess, when I first started writing for this magazine. Because one of my first pieces for them was about the impact of the Internet on political culture uh, in 1995. Uh, I, was, I was fascinated by the way that um, – uh, You know, voices that previously couldn't be heard at all—you know—could be heard really loudly online, and that people were having uh, these these intense, heated political arguments uh, um, online, and that it seemed to catalyze people's opinions. In a different way. Do you have a comparison to today? Uh, I mean, in one sense. I mean, you know, I think the thing I noticed back then was that you know, people. You know, there, there's a type of partisanship that could be catalyzed by people talking to each other and sometimes past each other online that is a little similar to some of the stuff you see, you know, in shouting matches on Twitter and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yet at the same time, I also really like the idea um, that, uh, that you know, people could do an end run around traditional media, right? You know, like you, when you went online and this is like literally Usenet and, you know, discussion boards back then. They didn't really even have websites in like 1995 when I'm writing this. Um, you know, and, and listservs, you know, email listservs, you know, what you saw was that, that, um, the mainstream press had really put a, um, a bottleneck on the number of acceptable viewpoints that were out there, for good and for ill. Uh, um, I mean, the, people will tell you the good part is it sort of, you know, it made maybe discourse a little more civil because you had less sort of, uh, the ability for people that were, you know, really strident or really unbending in their political views to be heard. So, you know, some people would say that's good. But but it was also, you know, you would look at discussions online and they were, they were much more diverse and often more eloquent and deeper, you know, deeper and more interesting. Mm-hmm. Like people would get in these long conversations and, and they would, and you could get a lot more out of, out of following that conversation than you could out of reading these fairly short, dull pieces yeah. that were written for the mainstream. So, so, you, you definitely still see that today. I mean, like, the, People you know, the, stealing
0: stories from Reddit or something. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, yeah, stories that begin online, conversation that's much more, um, wide ranging and juicier online. Uh, and, and, you know, there's clearly, you know, there's clearly challenges to civic culture with that as we see with, you know, Donald Trump and things like mm-hmm. that. But, um, but by and large, I have to say, I, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of prefer, uh, the, 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 the fact that conversation is more open today um than the way it was you know 20 years ago with a much more conscripted media sphere
0: i think that it's actually really interesting to to look at the fact that you know the new crop of journalists are the ones that were raised in that environment totally absolutely i mean i'd I'd actually put you as one of their the forefathers of of that art
1: well one of the things i mean i tried to do early on was i was like well you know what's it like to write germanely in this medium right and so that was everything from in the early days just getting getting involved in discussions on discussion boards and listservs and Usenet. And then it was like, you know, in the early days of, quote, unquote, it wasn't even called blogging yet. It was just publishing for the web. Like I was Shift Magazine, which is a high-tech magazine in Canada. You know, we had a website. And so we started doing journalism that was purely for the web. And, was like, mm-hmm. and this is like in 1996, 97. And we were trying to figure out exactly, you know, so what type of voice works here, you know? It was clear that it was sort of – you know more casual i guess in a way and also you could you could link in outside resources that were outside your story you could, you didn't have to report everything if someone had done a really good job you could say well you know here's here's what this person said and go read the whole thing if you want to see it so i was i wanted to dive in and figure out what it meant to do journalism in this format and and you know there was also the ability to throw in video and pictures and whatnot uh, and i found that really really interesting um, and then when when blogging engines started up you know in the sort of i guess around 2000s and early 2000s i thought that was super interesting the idea that you could sort of run your own little thing mm-hmm. and i got involved in that i started running a blog um, so i've i've tried to sort of at least experiment with whatever comes along because that's it's the only way you can really figure out what something is going to be like is to sort of give it a give it a kick yourself, or at very least talk to a lot of people who are doing it.
0: Do you ever feel like you're you're at the kind of end of your ropes with that? Because I, I actually remember a conversation we had in the past about yeah. you, you had recently joined Snapchat, mm. and maybe I'm maybe I'm just projecting, but yeah. I, I think that you said that you you know didn't really get it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I Snapchat has, doesn't really have much purchase on me. Uh, um, uh, although I think that's because uh, I think it's because it, it's a social medium and i don't really you know my cohort of middle-aged folks aren't using it right so i think if i had a compelling reason to use it i would mm-hmm. use it i think whenever uh, people people use media that is use conversational media that is uh, um useful for them to have a conversation so for me that's twitter it's actually not facebook i don't really like facebook um i like vine you know i like uh, um uh, I, I like anything that um that do
0: you, do you think though that we're in the early days of of Snapchat and you know eventually you know the different generations will join because I know that you yeah. actually yeah. In, in an article that you wrote you you mentioned that sure. when you first joined Twitter you know you had to actually seek out like a
1: friend that's to right. follow that's right yeah yeah um I have no idea uh, what'll happen with Snapchat and in a weird way I sort of I built my entire career on not trying to predict the future at all. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's because a um it's it, it sort of intellectually uh, 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 uh without stakes i mean like nobody will ever go back and check whether or not you were right so it's kind of like it's like it's this completely um uh open ended uh uh you know irresp- irresponsible uh, or I, I don't mean irresponsible i mean th- there is no there's no stakes if you're wrong, which make which makes it um, easy to say whatever the heck you want. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that like you can't report on the future, and I like I'm a reporter. I like when I say something. I like being able to document it, show that I know it, cite the source, quote the people, cite the documents. So I like reporting on the present. Um, what I've you know, and, and and frankly, one of the fun things about reporting on the present is most people are so busy. Popping off about the future, that they're not paying any attention to what's happening in the present. So if you go out and you know, interview a couple dozen people, and read some books, and talk to some experts, and write a you know a five thousand word piece about what's happening in the present. Everyone's all like, wow, how did you figure that out? And I'm like, <laughs> it's called, <laughs> it's, it's reporting, man. Anyone yeah. can do it. You know, G- grab a piece of paper and a pencil. You're a reporter. So um, l- I was going to say, let's
2: let's bring it back for a second, though, to the idea of purchase with Snapchat. Because yeah. uh, uh, as we were reading back through some of your older articles, yeah. I found your description of Twitter. And I'm not a Twitter user. I don't, sure, yeah, Jeff's yeah. been pressuring yeah, yeah. me over here to. Follow and tweet and establish a social presence. Yeah, at Kyle (laughs) Craner. At Kyle Craner. At Kyle Craner. 64 followers strong. Yep. Um, So one of the things that struck me was your description of how Twitter is useful for you, or how it was useful to you at the time. and you almost converted me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you described it in a way I haven't seen it described uh, sure. before. So can you talk a little bit about that purchase sure. that you found in Twitter and maybe some of the newer
1: apps that you see finding that same niche? Yeah, sure. Well, what Twitter, what Twitter um, is really good at, uh, one of the things it's good at, because it's actually it's, – it's one of the – the reason why it's successful, the reason why most tools are successful – is when uh, I've found anyway, and certainly you know, in looking at how people use them, asking them what they like about them is when it, it can actually be used to do a bunch of different things, right? So the, people will use uh, two different people, ten different people, hundred people will use Twitter in very different ways, and and that's that's part of its strength because everyone will find some way. To, but but in general, you know, one of the things it's really good at doing is allowing you to sort of pay kind of lightweight attention to a lot of different voices, uh, you know, so you don't have to like necessarily sit and stare at whatever they're saying, but like this stuff just passes, these tweets streams just sort of pass through the corner of your attention and you discover, you know, by following people over a period of a few weeks and a few months in a year or two, you know, and now it's almost a decade that you learn an enormous amount about what's going on in their thinking uh, because, it's his longitudinal form of attention. You know, if you were to look at my my Twitter stream for, you know, a, a day, you know, I might I might tweet out a, a dozen, you know, different links and you'd see me kind of getting in conversations with people about them and it would it would seem kind of random. And then if you, you know, followed it for a month, you'd begin to realize, "Oh, I see he, you know, he sort of talks a lot about technology and and science and poetry and a little bit about uh, um, you know, pop culture and stuff like that, not that much." Uh and then after like a year, you know, it would be like sort of eavesdropping on me while I'm having a conversation with some of my friends at a cocktail party and occasionally maybe chiming in with me and you you would actually be able to describe, you know, with with surprising accuracy what my obsessions are, what my interests are. Mm-hmm. And so that that very fascinating sort of accumulation of knowledge over these tiny little breadcrumbs is one of the things people find very ple- pleasurable about Twitter. And it's also something people tend to find pleasurable to almost all forms of short form media. So, like whether that is you know status updates on Facebook, or whether that is uh, uh, any type of a tool that lets you communicate, Instagram pictures on Instagram. Like you, know, you sort of see a picture, but you know, like, after again follow someone for a month or two, you're like, oh, I kind of see what what's going on on this person, or or at least the part of them that they want to share here. Um, there's this there's this deep mosaic of little things that come together into a big picture over time that I think is very satisfying and, and fun. That's why people like that that short-form media.
2: That's what really struck me about the description in the first
1: place is how well
2: that also applies to things like Snapchat now and Instagram where you can sort of glance yeah, at someone's right. life. And you yeah. see it
0: on a daily basis. You see the updates. Um, and once you get you know a year into it, you realize that this is kind of – Maybe it's a projection of how somebody wants you to see them, but it's it is you know a sure version of themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean yeah. I think the reason why and the reason why it works is because it's you know it's not it's not a super new thing. This is what we do in everyday life. You know, we pay we sort of we 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 stitch together a, a mental model of what's going on with someone by looking at their body language and sort of by seeing the way they dress and picking up all these little signals. So it it's a very baked in human social ability and I think the reason why it succeeds online is that it's it's um it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fresh you know, uh, um, a fresh iteration of a very long-standing, venerable way that we humans have making sense of our social reality.
0: So let's let's back up a little bit, and you know, you have been writing at this point, you know, through the '90s and uh, on Canadian magazines and newspapers, and then you kind of switched gears a little bit and started writing for some of the larger you know, That's right. technology publications in the U.S., you know, Wired, New York uh-huh. Times Magazine, the New York Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out dozens. Mother Jones is one of the other ones. Mother so, Jones. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm sure everybody can pick up on this because of the way that you've been speaking for the last few minutes, but you have a really unique kind of beautiful outlook on how technology works and science works and life works. And you know you you the the whole reason i started paying attention to you um was actually because of an article we'll discuss later but uh you know since you know as as long as i can remember you've just had a very distinct personality on the page um so can you kind of talk us through you know whether that was intentional mm-hmm. whether you developed that uh where it came from sure. and, and why you did that tra- why you made that transition yeah. to you know the United States
1: well, publications Well the uh, uh the United States stuff is 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 easiest to explain because it it's 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 uh, a part of about it's a part of two things one is that I um I moved to the U.S. because I was uh, m- married at that time to a Canadian woman who was moving down to uh, finish her degree at Rutgers. And we tried living long distance, and it was miserable. So this time I moved down with her in 1998. Uh, and because I was living in the U.S., I was like, all right, now I'm going to try and, 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 and do what I've been doing. And I was 30 years old, and I've been sort of spent about five years freelancing for these Canadian publications and I was like, all right, I want to try and write for some of these big American magazines because you know they're awesome magazines, they have great audiences, they pay pretty well, and they'll let me write it at, at a long length. It wasn't easy to do though because I, I didn't know anyone really at all in, in New York media, so I had to start you know all over again. I kind of did the same thing. I started with smaller publications mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that you know were respected and let you do really good work. Didn't pay as well and worked my way up. And it took f- a it took farm it, leagues. Yeah, yeah. Lingo (laughs) Franco was was a good early magazine that that ran really really smart things, Um, uh, so so that's why that transition happened. It was it was it was a a long haul of of really trying. Um, In terms of the way that I write, I mean, I think in some respects that was it's a really a deep evolution because you know if you if you were to talk to me when I was in college and I'm on the campus paper, you know, my goal as a as a writer would be like you know I want to be you know if I'm the court reporter for the Toronto Star. That would be awesome right you know that's i just wanted a job doing reporting every day i really like that uh in a way i was sort of forced into long-form freelance writing partly because there was no no one was offering me a job you know if they had offered me a job Toronto to start for the court reporter i'd still be there uh i'm a loyal guy i would never have left uh, um uh, but when you write freelance you sort of have to aim for bigger things because you're trying to write for these publications that will mm-hmm. give you a bunch of money Um, that's not all of it though. I mean, I think I was also inspired by, by a handful of writers who were able to write, um, in a really intelligent way, really respecting the reader, doing really deep research and pulling stuff in from all sorts of different strands. Um, because I was in Canada, they're, they're actually Canadian. Like one of them was a woman named Moira Farr, who was a writer for this magazine. She wrote these brilliantly reported cultural essays, uh, she was a feminist writer. she would write about you know women 's issues feminism, but she would just she was witty and funny, and she would just do a huge amount of reading and interesting reporting. Uh, I loved her writing, and I, I was sort of trying to emulate that stuff um, I, uh, I also um, really started reading and liking malcolm gladwell 's writing when he was breaking out in The New Yorker in the late '90s uh, and he was someone again who would find um, a way to sort of Talk in in a really complex and interesting way but clear way about some aspect of social science that he thought was extremely relevant uh, to everyday life and had not really been paid attention to. And he was amazing at, again, doing deep reporting but then bring you back the best gems of it. So I started really looking at his stuff and breaking it down and trying to see how he did what he did. Uh, so so essentially my like i I sort of my my ambitions grew as I saw this amazing writing, and I realized that's the type of thing that I wanted to do, except I wanted to do it with the stuff that I was interested in, which was technology in everyday mm. life um so so I had a lot of inspirational models, and I really studied the way they they wrote to try and learn from that um, I think the uh I, I, in one sense, I guess the advantage of writing about technology was that. Also, yeah, I could kind of, you know, I could kind of write about anything. I mean, you know, you know, I, I realized, you know, I can write stories about the arts and how they're being transformed. I could write stories about, you know, reading and literature and how reading and literature changes. I could write stories about politics and how, how political culture changes. It was this, it was a fantastic gift to have this beat that could kind of go anywhere. Um, and that also increased the range of what I could, uh, what I could do. It was, it was, it was, it was really exciting. Um, the other, at the same time, it, and I be, and this only came to me, you know, I guess it came to me early because I read stuff like this in college, but it has a really deep history, right? I mean, you know, technology, you know, and people's, you know, social critics engagement with the idea that you create a new tool and it sort of changes society. I mean, that goes back to Socrates, uh, and his concern that writing, uh, is going to degrade our memories and kill off, um, face-to-face conversation because we will sit around reading each other's utterances instead of talking to each other uh and so you know i started you know delving deeply into history and that was that was super interesting i mean i i had been most when i studied literature i was most interested in historical writing i was my most favorite period still to this day is probably 18th century british poetry uh and i still think that's like really the acme of 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 Letters, so I read a lot of old stuff, and I, and that 's what you 're aiming towards <laughs> you' towards so but so, so being able to and I discovered that people readers really loved when you could sort of give a historical perspective mm-hmm. uh, into stuff because they, they like the idea that you 're broadening their um their sphere. I think the one of the great things about being a writer in the age of the internet early on was that I could get feedback from readers and I would get these great emails and then comments on my blog, you know, and then, you know, and then at replies and stuff where people would tell me what they liked the most. And so that was super rewarding because they would say, yeah, we like the history stuff. You know, we like the fact that you're trying to talk, uh, you know, about sort of, um, you know, larger social uh, trends instead of just the minutiae of whether this company is, you know, going to be hot or whether this thing is going to die. I've
0: I've talked to bloggers before that are kind of independent. Yeah. uh, And, you know, they've told me. That they will actually go back in a piece and edit the piece and you know remove lines that didn 't do well because they have yeah. such access to data that sure. they can you know, they can you know triage it later on yep. and, and yep. make it better mm-hmm. um, you don 't really have that ability when no. you 're writing for
1: other magazines no no, yeah you, you, you can't you can 't go back and edit stuff for uh for uh, for, uh, for uh, partly for there's a couple reasons one is that you know it, 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 when you write for publications that are that are sort of trying to be a record of society um if you go back and rewrite stuff it gets a little orwellian right it's Mm -hmm. like you know oh that you know know, we didn't really mean to say that it's gone yeah exactly i mean you can certainly and you you can and you certainly should you know correct things when they're wrong um when i was blogging and when i'm blogging if there's something i want to add to it i will usually go i will just do an addendum to the Mm -hmm. piece you know if someone says something like wow you are spectacularly wrong in the comments and that certainly happened i'll go in and then maybe I'll strike through stuff that's wrong. I'll and I'll write the stuff that's new and say you know go read the comment to see why I'm changing this. Um, but but I I do I do think the it's been this enormous gift for me yeah. to be able to um, to hear from and understand just how intelligent my readership is because it makes me um, it, it makes me want to do stuff that is even smarter and more challenging. Uh, I think I think if I was you know thirty years ago you know I might have had all sorts of illusions about what People can or can't understand, and I don't have those because they can talk to me.
0: So, I, I have one question, but then I want to move on because I sure. know that you know we're, our time is limited. Yeah. But, um, with Wired, you write these kind of capsule columns, yeah, uh, that's right, maybe a thousand words. Oh, god, no, 600 words, 600. And they
1: are sonnets, my friend, they're okay. short, okay.
0: And you know, you, you write about these everyday topics, um, you know, the screenshot or you know, quantum computing or. Uh, you know is the NSA listening to us but you bring in this like incredible slant to them that is is so clearly your writing Um, and then you know on the flip side some of your long form pieces are just you know so clearly researched you know to death that you're bringing in kind of every aspect that you can you know every side of it that you can think of and then um, you know you have your viewpoint that kind of shoots through it like a bullet but and I, I imagine that this is all intentional. But I guess my question is, um, why do you why did you choose each sure. of these to do that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, like uh, with the Wired column, the mandate of that column, and I'm, I'm I guess I've been it's kind of unsettling to realize it's almost nine years now. Um, was uh, every month I was going to try and talk about some way that technology was transforming everyday life. Um, and my and. One of the things people often don't realize about magazines is they're really slow, right? I mean, it, if I were to have an idea for a column today, the absolute earliest it would appear in print is like maybe two and a half, three months from now. And more typically, more typically, the the I, I will have been stewing over the idea for like years before I get to the point where I'm like, I think I want to write about this now. Um, Stephen Johnson in his um, in his book uh, Where Good Ideas Come From has this wonderful chapter uh, that's called um, – I think it's called The Slow Hunch or is it The Long Hunch? I'm misremembering that. Ba- basically, he, it's his point that like really, really great ideas bake over an enormously long period of time. And I've learned to really respect that, which is to say like um, uh, almost every one of those columns you'll see has been something that I've been sort of – it's been kind of in the corner of my mind for a very long time. And so when I write about it, it's not necessarily because, uh, I saw something and it sparked the idea. Uh, it's because I saw something and it catalyzed something that I've been thinking about and I realized well, now is the moment to write about this basically. And so the, the upside of that is, you know, I don't have to, in a way, I don't have to figure out what it is I'm going to say. I've been thinking about it for a very long time. uh, uh what I have to do now is I have to report it in a way that will, um, that will capture what it is I've been seeing and, and, and and find the really amazing examples and research that 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 sort of anchors it for the reader and gives them something. So so the I mean the other thing about those columns is that you know there's a, there's a big ratio of like um, if you want to talk about writers who don't write, you know every month I come up with about you know I don't know anywhere from two to like four different ideas that uh, that easily I could write columns on. Uh, and i only write one of those and the other ones get discarded like i will i will
0: How often do you go back and, and pick up one of those discarded you ones
1: you know two or three times a year one of them gets picked up but you know like i like the point is i probably generate in a year uh 50 or 60 yeah you know, maybe not that many but like let, let's say let's say like you know 30 or 40 ideas okay. of which 12 appear yeah um and that's because there's this you know there's this competition as to you know I, I really want this it's very short it's got to do a lot in a short period of time and it does and the, thank you uh, and the, and there's some things you can't fit into that space right i have to think also like there's some ideas that are in a weird it's really funny i've almost never written about it's, a, it's something that i find incredibly interesting and i want to talk about but like abuse online is a really big issue but it's really hard to say something intelligent and new in 600 words without being glib right uh, and so I have had real trouble wrestling with how to get that in there. Um, you know, I've I, I've fitted into larger pieces. I've talked about it in other areas, but it's been very hard to wrestle with because the the idea has to iterate in 600 words really well. Um, so there's some things that, that I that I simply don't write about. Uh, but it, it's it's a it's a really it's hard. I mean that column is really really hard to write and then after you've got the idea i mean i will you know i'll make like you know i don't know anywhere from between five and ten phone calls to different people to interview them uh and i'll read a bunch of you know uh papers maybe a few books uh that, that are column's been in on almost it. every issue oh no it's been in every single issue it has yeah been. yeah because yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. i i could have sworn i missed one once no no but i
1: think i think it's been i think been every issue for well for congratulations nine, nine years you, now. You, you
0: must be one of the only writers that can say that at <laughs> yeah,
1: i know exactly if i get to 10 years i mean if i get to 10 years then i'll have to have some little sort of celebration for it basically it's
0: so. i i i'll say this so it's um you know wired has been one of my favorite magazines since 2010 and oh, i'm glad um, and i flip straight to yours the second it comes in now, oh, that's great you know we could talk about the you know you're writing forever so um <laughs> 10 Let's, years would be an incredible achie- achievement. Yeah, yeah we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to be reading until you stop. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I definitely want to talk to you about, you know, some of the, the, the whole point of this podcast is, you know, we want to talk to uh, writers about the one story that they could never tell. They could never tell, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. because of, you know, one reason or another. And and I know that you, you kind of pointed out a story that you did tell us, or but that it you did took write. a
1: really long time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, it seems like you you think in, in you know in time and distance and not you know in, in just getting something done
1: yeah yeah, yeah, I mean the truth is yeah i have i 've never really had a story that that i 've never been able to tell i 've had a few stories that i' pitched and they got preempted because some other magazine you know sort of uh, um, wrote that story you know in the process of me doing it, but it, it wasn 't uh, it, that, that's a different problem. That's just a, that's just a tactical problem. You know, yeah. I was slow. Um, but I definitely have had a couple stories that took an enormously long time to write because, usually because, the idea was um, very long in the baking and then I had the second problem that I had to convince an editor that this was actually a real thing we ought to write about. Um, one of the things I learned, you know, sort of... I guess early on was that I was running into things that were really cool and I could sort of tell where, you know, were, were likely to become trends that got bigger, but they weren't necessarily evident in the mainstream yet. And um, I could totally see them happening at the fringes, but they had not moved to the center. And, uh, in my early phases of, of writing, I would, uh, I would pitch these things that I was seeing in the fringes to editors and they'd be like, I, I, I don't think that's I don't think it's a thing. I don't, I think you're wrong about that. No one will ever do that. Et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then I would see this thing, you know, two years later, move into the mainstream. And I was like, ah, oh, I was right. Um, you know, darn those, those editors pound, pound, pound the desk. <laughs> if only, you know, they, you know, they, they said it was crazy in the, in the, in the lab. Um, so what I, what I learned from that was like to, you know, to move more slowly, which is to say, you know, observe things and then not bring it to the editor until such time as it really is out there. And there's like 10, 20, 30 million people doing this. Uh, at which point in time I would pitch it, and we could do a big long piece, and they would understand it. And I would also, have you know, I would have spent a few years gathering wool. I would have been observing things. I would have been thinking about it. I would have been taking notes. I would have been, and, I, and it was a lot easier to write something that was a little more textured because because of that time. So the example I'm going to give you is um, is is, is uh, begins back in I guess in, 19, in 1999. This is a very funny thing. So I'm Pomeranian99 on Twitter. I'm actually Pomeranian99 in almost every. Form of social media, and the reason is because in 1999, I was writing a column for that report on Business Magazine, that Canadian Business Magazine, and it was sort of like Wired. Every month, I would I would do this thing where I would look at some thing of technology that was emerging into everyday life with a bit more of a business focus. Um, and I wrote, I, I pitched matter. I said, you know, I want to write about instant messaging, you know, which was really starting to take off. Then it had sort of been around a little bit for a few years, but it was really beginning to become a much bigger thing amongst young people. And I, I could, and I was visiting companies and I saw that all the, all the, you know, the, the sort of young, uh, uh, people were not using the phone. They were just on instant messaging all day long. And that's how their team got together. Something that's very, very common now, but this is totally new for people. So I signed up for an instant messaging account and I, they didn't, you know, Clive Thompson was taken, you know, I didn't want Clive Thompson 579. So I tried Pomeranian, which is a dog. I used to play with a Pomeranian dog on my grandparents, uh, Ukrainian grandparents dairy farm when I was a kid, so I like that dog. Pomeranian was taken. It was 1999, so I went for Pomeranian 99, and yeah, that was free, so I got that. And I and of course I didn't think I didn't know if instant messaging was gonna was gonna stay around, you know. So I thought, well, I'll use this for a year or two, and then you know that'll be it. <laughs> um, uh, but I just it just it never stopped. So so that's why I'm Pomeranian 99. So I'm writing about instant messaging, and while I'm writing this column, there's a couple things I notice that are really interesting. One of them is that. A lot of the people would talk about how when they logged on to instant messaging – back then there was this buddy list and there would be this sound of a creaking door opening up when someone came in and it would slam shut when they when they left. There's all these funny little things. Oh, we remember. Yeah, I remember <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, and um, and people would talk about how it, it the fact – even if they didn't speak to the person, seeing their name on the buddy list made them feel like they were sort of in the same room because they knew that if they wanted to, they could – you know, sort of talk to them, right? So it was like it was like suddenly all these people, and they might be in other countries, they might be in other cities. Like they're all sitting in a room together because you knew that if you said, "Hey, you know, hey Mike, you know, hey, you know, hey, you know, hey Jennifer," that they would that they would go, "Yeah, what's up?" Right? So there was this feeling of co-presence, or, or you'd have
0: you know a very angsty
1: away message. Yeah, a very angsty away message. There's this very there's a sense of co-presence, and then I also started talking to this. There was this, just this brilliant consultant who'd written this white paper in 1999 about what he called presence management, which was how people were managing to convey whether or not they were there, whether or not they were available. Uh, and he, he interviewed this the CEO who was who – was, who like would log on. He forced everyone in his company, like maybe not that many, like 100, 150 people, said everyone, when you get to work, you log on to am and, and when you leave your desk, you log off. And he says, you're in all friending me. And he would show up at work in the morning, and he would log on, and he would put himself on, like, away status. He, like, he's not talking to anyone. He didn't want to talk to him on, on instant messaging. He only wanted to be able to look at that list and see whether or not they were there. So he was using it as a, as a mode of presence management. So this, to me, was unbelievably interesting, right? You could see these conventions and this awareness emerging. And I thought – and I sort of – I think I mentioned this really briefly – in in my in my article but it it kind of lodged my brain that oh this is this is something that's a little different from the way we use email because you know when you send email you can't tell if someone's there this is different from the way we use the phone because you make a phone call you can't tell if someone's there you know um there's something about this thing replicating physical co-presence that's happening here and then about about three years later four years later i was writing by then i was writing for the new york times magazine and they called me up and they said hey you know we want you to write a story about mobile phones and i 'm like, oh, okay you know what about mobile phones they're like just mobile phones what 's happening with them these crazy new things because you know we, we forget but in two thousand and three thousand and four there were still you know they were still like relatively new things for most people, but they were edging into the mainstream and uh, and so I started calling up um, this is uh, you know by then I sort of understood that if you wanted to write something smart you know you didn 't just talk to people and you didn 't just talk to the inventors of corporations in, uh, of things because frankly often the inventors don 't don't even necessarily understand what their invention is doing. What you want to talk to are the philosophers and the scientists and the, uh, and the, and the academics and the thinkers who study this, and they'll give you great context. So I was calling around, and I was talking. I said, which sociologists, which anthropologists, which social sciences, which historians You know, are thinking about mobile phones? And everyone said, oh, you've got to go talk to Mimi Ito, and she was a um, – She was a social scientist who had spent the 90s in Japan looking at mobile phone culture because they were they were very ahead on mobile phone culture, and she had written some stuff talking about how um, the way that couples would use text messaging to maintain their relationship, and she would talk about how like you know uh, know, I guess this is in Japan when you know it was still kind of expensive to get an apartment, so a lot of these you know. 20 something couples still living at home with their folks and, you know, or, or they're living in separate apartments. They've been able to get something together, right? And so they would, they would go home from work and they would start text messaging each other and they would send these just little messages back and forth all day long. And, and she would say to them, well, you know, why don't you you know, pick up the phone and call each other and they're like well you know that we do that sometimes but what, what, what have you discovered is that trading a lot of little messages makes us feel more intimate than a half hour phone conversation there's something about it that's more like just exchanging a glance across the room or I'm reading the paper you're watching the TV and you see something funny so you just go oh that was really funny and we talk about it for a second but then we go back to our mm-hmm. sort of individual activities you know there was something there; it, it felt more um, intimate weirdly like it, it which is is paradoxical. You think it's the opposite. You think that you're not intimate until you're having this deep conversation. But she was discovering these little messages. And so I connected that. I was like, oh, this reminds me of what people were telling me with instant messaging, right? So this was beginning to sort of come together. And then a couple years later, I started looking at GPS. And there was these people that were trying to work on services that would sort of auto report where you are to your other friends. So you now had this geographic sense of where everyone was. And I, by now, I'm talking to my editor at the New York Times. I'm going, you know, something – Something really weird is happening in people's ability to pay attention to each other online, and there's, it's not like you know. It's, again, it's not like messages, like email. It's not like being in the same room together. There's something. There's something new and weird, and like they sort of looked at me as if I'd lost my mind. They, you know, they just they had no idea what I was talking about. I wasn't. I, I, to be fair, I wasn't explaining it very well. Right, so. I I wanted to write about this, but I I just could not figure out a way to talk about it in a way that made sense. So I kept on reading and I kept on talking to social scientists. I kept on reading, you know, literature to get clues and history to get clues. And then, and and, and I would bring it up with editors like every year and they would kind of go, yeah, you know, that's kind of interesting. I don't really know what you're talking about yet. (laughs) Um, Finally, finally what happened was that, you know, kind of, uh, it was 2008. So this is nine years after I'd first started to detect this in, in instant messaging. And, uh, and, and I thought a lot about it and I read a lot about it. And I was, I, I, would written by that point in time, you know, maybe, I don't know, six or seven or eight features of the New York times magazine. And my editor said, you know, we'd like to make you a contributing editor. So we'll have this formal relationship now and you'll do more stuff for us and whatnot. And to celebrate, we went out for dinner. Uh, my editor, uh, uh, me and the editor in chief of the magazine, Jerry Maserati. And in the middle of the dinner, uh, my phone buzzed. Because, and this is like one of those old, I still in 2008, I still had a flip phone, still a mm-hmm. crazy old school flip phone. And I mean, it had like a little LCD screen, but I didn't yet have an iPhone or anything like that. And, um, and what it was, was Dodgeball. Now, Dodgeball, it's, it's sort of dead now. The, Dennis Crowley, the guy that invented Foursquare, He invented dodgeball when he was still a student. And dodgeball was basically just this text based way to report where you were. You went to a bar, you sent a little thing saying, you know, at, you know, uh, um, Loki Lounge or something like that. And then it would go into the database, figure out where that was, and report to all your friends. So you'd get these little, you know, text messages all night long saying, Clive's here, Clive's there, you know, your friends here and there. And, you know, I, at that point in time, I had like two little kids. So I wasn't going out as much, but I would sit at home and I would get these text messages and I could see which, I could sort of tell which one of my friends was going on a big bender because they would like go from very little activity to like nine bars in one. And <laughs> I'm like, all right, something bad just happened to my friend because he's drinking like a fish. And I would, you know, I'd text him like, what's wrong, dude? Um, and I, and so my editor was like, you know, what was that message? And I described this to them and he was like, Really? And I said, yeah, I said, yeah, "Yeah." it's 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 sort of weird. It's like this ESP now I have with my friends. Like I can sort of, even just with this one little signal, which is where they happen to be and whether they're going out a lot, it gives me this rich sense information. And, and I realized then that I actually had a way to sort of talk about it to a large audience. That I, that I was saying, well, this is what this, this is like a form of extrasensory perception, basically. It's a new way of paying attention to each other. And when he saw that, when I described it that way, he was like, all right, you should write a piece about that. And finally, and that became my story about amb- what was called ambient awareness. And I didn't know that term existed until I did my reporting. I discovered that there's this pre-existing term in, in social psychology. Ambient awareness is when you pick up these little cues from people by looking at their body language. And you sort of know what's going on in their mind. And I said, this is happening now in an interesting new way because we have all these little messages and these ways of paying attention to each other. And that became one of, you know I think, my favorite pieces I've ever written for the New York Times – it became a chapter in my book that I think is one of the most successful chapters in my book. It, it, it's a one that if I were to if I were to count up the amount of people who have emailed me and said, hey, I like this, like half of the comments are all about that one chapter. Mm-hmm. And so that story took nine years to we, get into print. And then you think about it being a chapter in my book. Well, that's 14 years after I first started noticing that phenomena. That's we, how long it took.
0: I mean, uh, you should do this again every nine years because, <laughs> as I was reading the article and as you were explaining this to us just now, you know, I, there's so many you know evolved forms of all of these. Like dodgeball became Foursquare, that's became right. Find my friends yep, became sure. Happen, which is this dating app that shows yep. like you know similar people in your area. Totally. Uh, totally, Instant messenger became you know went through a million forms and now, now it's I'd like say GChat, GChat, Facebook, Snapchat, Snapchat, Snapchat. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I still um, remember the Door Creek. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: But I mean, it's it's. I have a million questions about this story that you wrote, but um, I guess the first one, the most relevant, would be um, other than you not being able to convey what it was
1: about. Why do you think it took you nine years to write? Well, I think I think it took me nine years to write partly because um, I, I needed a reality to catch up to what I was seeing in the um, kind of in the fringes. I needed the, I needed the fringe stuff to become so central to everyday life that that the. That the mass readers would would sort of see what was happening. And that that's sort of an important lesson. I learned an important lesson from that in a way, which is that, and that when I said earlier I don't like to write about the future, I want to write about the present. I think it's because, um, I think it's because uh, talking about the present, A, is, is powerful because you can really report on it. You don't have to speculate. You can find out what's really going on. Um, but secondly, uh, you know, if you can really identify something that's happening Powerfully in the present, that has a trajectory from the past, you can learn a little bit about the future, like you know one of the things that um, because it took so long for you know that fringe activity to become part of the mainstream, by the time it 's part of the mainstream, I could see that this is probably persistent, like this is not just a this is not – a the, uh, ambient awareness is not going to go away because it actually goes back thousands of years, right? So the, the reason why you know it's going to be a part of our media sphere going forward, even if Twitter dies, even when Facebook dies, even when Snapchat dies, there will be something of this activity that we are going to do that will, that will be a, a feature of whatever tool comes next. Um, and so I think it took a long time to write because uh, I was moving towards this type of piece. I mean, I, sorry, North Up Frye some of my favorite literary critics, he talks about the difference between, um, between facts and myth. Uh, um, uh, when he says myth, he means like the story of uh, you know, uh, you know, um, Prometheus stealing fire and being chained to the rock. You know? uh, uh, and um, he goes, you know, facts are what happens. History is what, ha- is what happened. Um, history is what happened. Uh, and let me rephrase that so we, you could cut that out. <laughs> what he says is that history is what happened. But myth is what happens, right? What happens all the time. Huh. Those stories happen over and over and over again. The reason why we like mythology is because it explains what always happens in life. And I've, be- I've realized that, I'm, that what I'm really – in a weird way, what I'm really interested in my journalism is not just reporting on what happened but what always happens or what is a persistent feature of – features of human psychology and human behavior and human passion that enact themselves out in our technologies. And when I can do that really, really well, those stories will live for a long time. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I still get emails from people who are reading the ambient awareness story for the first time six years later or eight years later. Yeah. And they're still like, hey, this is great. And that's my goal. I want to write stories about technology's effect on everyday life that, that, can, you know, that can live for a very, very long time because they... they, they they get their talons into some aspect, some juicy aspect of boy, that sounds kind of gross. <laughs> uh, a juicy aspect of everyday life that, um, that 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 is what happens, basically. Well, it is, not just so, what happened.
2: Well, I was going to say, how often do you find yourself sitting on a story for so long, and is that how you kind of know that it's something yeah. that has become a bigger idea? Uh,
1: uh, every uh, there's nothing that I that I write anymore that I haven't been sitting on for years, basically. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, like. Uh, there's there's yeah there's nothing that where i go like so you're um, the
0: opposite of hot takes
1: <laughs> cold takes yeah. uh extremely cold takes um well considered takes i mean in one sense it gets easier the older you get right because you've seen a lot of stuff so you know in one sense you know the advantage i've had is that i've I've been interested in the same thing, very passionately interested in it for 20 years. So it becomes a little easier to recognize long-term patterns because you know, back when I was 25, I couldn't see those patterns as easily because I just hadn't been doing it for as long. Um, and you know, fortunately, I still find this subject matter totally thrilling. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm i I'm, I'm going to do this until the you know wheels come off the train, basically. Uh, but um, but it definitely it definitely does get a little easier as, as, as time goes on. Uh, um, so so uh but yeah every 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 story, pretty much every call, I mean I'm trying to think so like like here's an example, a recent wired column, so I wrote about um I wrote about you know voice dictation and how that might change uh the way we express ourselves, you know, uh, um because now you know phones. Uh, are getting so much easier. They're getting really good at at rendering your voice. So more and more people that I was running into were like just quickly dictating an email or a text message or whatnot. Um, And so that's an interesting question is, you know, how do we express ourselves when we write with our voice compared to when we write with our hands, right? And, you know, in one sense, that's a quote unquote new thing that's happening. But in one sense, I've been, you know, sort of thinking about the way that, Technologies of expression change the style, uh, of our, of our self-expression for a long time because I got interested in that when I, when I first started p- p- seeing people, you know, write email. Cause like, what the heck is email, right? I mean, it's, it's not like a written letter. Uh, it's not, it's not like a written essay. People write you back and they quote some of what you said before. I mean, that's new and weird. So I could see that even the email was like, had this weird new expressivity yeah. that was strange. And so every single time I see a new, Mode of communication that becomes very popular. I'm, I gravitate toward one of the one of the things I gravitate towards is this question of you know so how does that change the way we express ourselves? And so in one sense, you know, voice dictation is sort of new, but it's also something that I've just been persistently interested in. So I can sort of fit it in. That's why that's why I get it. See, that's why I get interested in. I guess that's why I get interested in that part of it. Like there's, mm-hmm. you could think of nine things you could say about voice dictation. For me, it's about personal style emotional style, the timbre of our communications.
0: Well, it's it's funny that that's kind of what you're, you're, you know, globbing onto because a lot of people are talking about, you know, with emails, uh, you, you, everything sounds passive aggressive because there's, you know, nobody knows how to express tone and and intention through emails. So they use like exclamation marks and ellipses. People are talking about memes and gifs as, as a new form of communication. But you know, again, this is going back to, you know, your unique outlook on all of this. I haven't heard anybody talking about dictation as a new art form in communication.
1: Yeah, and and the funny thing is, you know, like, and again, you know, when I was sort of looking in history, you can see some antecedents to it, right? Because, like, so you know, Henry James, he's a he's a novelist, and he's and he writes his first bunch of novels by hand, and then at some point in time, and I'm not, I don't know exactly why he decided to dictate them, mm-hmm. and he and he discovered that he really liked it, uh, and you know, the funny thing is, you know, my my first thought when I looked at my the effect of my own my own voice dictating more was that m- my language became a little less flowery because I discovered that it, like in my in my writing, when I write with my hands, I, you know, typing, I use a lot of adverbs and adjectives. I like sort of really having, you know, sentences that have that, but it, the voice dictation wasn't so good at capturing that. So I sort of dialed that back a bit. And, and, but yet J- Henry James did the opposite. His it, they've studied his books and they actually became more flowery when he started dictating them so, so there was something in it that changed the way he wrote that way and um uh you know so, so there there will be some sorts of transformations and I think they're just incredibly interesting mm-hmm. I mean in one sense the other thing I, I loved and this epiphany came to me from you know, just thinking, I guess I was talking to another scholar about this. Voice dictation is also, in a strange way, more similar to writing on a typewriter than it is to writing on Word, because you have to formulate the sentence in your head before you say it, right? You know, like with Word, you start writing, you write 10 words, like, oh, that's stupid. And you, and you erase them, and, you go, and then you, it's all but the first two, and you keep on writing. It's very iterative. You write an email like that, you write on Word like that. With a typewriter, and I'm old enough to have written on those things, man. Like you know, you can't go back and edit it very, very easily. Can't so screw you, it up. you had to think right. What, what's this sentence about? And you think about it, and, and you get it in your head, and you type it out. And that it's it's very similar to like writing with your voice. You're like you know you don't just start babbling. You you think for a second. What am I saying here? And then you say it. And I found something kind of funny and delightful about that. Finally, a technology that forces us to stop and think about what we're going to say before we say it, instead of just encouraging us to gush out. So
0: fun fun fact before I forget. Uh, just last week, in, in, at the end of February, it was the hundredth anniversary of Henry James's death. Oh, so wow. this is uh, I'm glad that we were able to fit him, into Bring the him in. Bring him in there, yeah. But um,
2: I was going to say there is one more thing that we noted from this article that I do want to mention before we move on. It's the the quote from uh, Leslie Rieschelt. Uh, that consultant. Oh, Leslie. Yeah. Remember that?
1: Yeah. She's great. She's fantastic. Reichelt. That's yeah. how you say her yeah. name.
2: So the, in that article, there's a quote from her that says, can you imagine Facebook for children in kindergarten and they never lose touch with those kids for the rest of their lives? What's that going to do to them?
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is
2: something that seems like it's a theme throughout your work. As yeah. you go on, it continues. Um, what do you What do you think now that we've looked back and we're revisiting
1: this quote now? Sure. How, how, yeah. do, you, how do you view that? I thought that was an incredibly stirring question. and. Again, one of the things I like about being a reporter is, like, I get to talk to a lot of people, and, you know, man, you talk to 20 or 30 people about a subject, they will say the smartest things that you could never have thought of on your own. Like, that was not – that question of, you know, Facebook's longitudinal effect was not on my mind when I started researching that in 2008 because it had only really been public for two years at that point in time. Um, uh, But as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, God, that's a really interesting, wise question Mm -hmm. about the longitudinal effects of a technology, and I didn't have an answer for it back then. No one did, right? Um, what I think we've seen, and I think what we're seeing, is that you know there is um, there are uh, deep social effects that social networking, you know, can have when you stay in persistent contact with people that are from a different life stage. So one, you know, one enormous danger is that it's harder to evolve, I suppose. It's harder to sort of cast off your skin and say, I'm, the, I'm a new person, you know, because you sort of have you know, these ghosts of old relationships kicking around. Um, and I think, uh, and I think, you know, some, you know, some evidence suggests that young people struggle with that a little bit, right? Um, oh,
0: for sure. Absolutely. It, it, I mean, it, break up with a girl, you're going to see her every day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so, so in a weird way, Lisa Reichelt identified the kind of, you know, the ex-girlfriend problem or, you know, with with Facebook really early on. Uh, I think the other thing that's lurking behind what she says that only became evident is that one of the problems with Facebook is that it's trying to shove all of your life in one bucket. And actually, Dana Boyd later on, uh, years after this piece, talked about the problem of context collapse, which is like when, you know, if your mother's there and your boss is there and your friend from the pub is there and... uh, and your ex girlfriends are there, and also someone you're trying to seduce is there. <laughs> that's a really weird environment yeah, to make to make a single utterance. And it's sort of like the Facebook remains useful for certain types of utterances, but people tend to want to go somewhere else. Like this is why you're this is why there's always going to be a ferment, I think, in different modes of communication. Whether it's Yik Yak, whether it's Snapchat, whether that's mm-hmm. whatever it is, whether you know that's uh, um, Instagram, is because people do want to have different facets of their lives in different places and you know facebook will probably remain you know very useful for some time because of just its scale and size gives it certain advantages but there's always going to be this crazy experimentation so because of the problem that she identified you know like it's never going to, it's uh, facebook's never going to probably stop having that problem you know uh, based on the way their business model works um i'm really you know i think it's really going to get really Weird when we are, you know, twenty years on, yeah. and someone's in their forties, having like, you know, having had this persistent contact. You know, will it will it still be true the, that that people from like kindergarten are someone that's in your network, or will they, or will that have faded just because your life life change, life, life sort of life stage fades? You know, right now, someone's twenty five. You know, yeah, they could probably still be haunted by someone that they knew, like you know, in, in their junior year of high school. But maybe 15 years later they're not because that the the network changes. Yeah, but then, I don't know.
0: I mean, you're you're in this weird situation where it's like you know, it's a spider web of connections. So yeah. you know maybe you cut that person out of your life, but you have a friend that didn't, and yep. so you still totally. tangentially hear about it. Totally, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. So the
1: um, it's uh, it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, again, this is why I sort of tend to report on the present rather than the future because yeah. you know you and I could speculate on that for a long time and. We have no idea who's right. No, exactly.
0: <laughs> so I, I have a couple other questions about this particular article because I think it. Um, I mean, not the, this thing that we've been glancing over this whole time is that you interviewed Mark Zuckerberg for this article. Yeah,
1: that's right. And, yeah. And w- was that by phone? What was that like? Oh, it was fun. He was he was uh, he was an interesting guy to talk to. He was. Um, I mean, this is very early on, so you know, uh, I, this may have been one of the f- first times that he was interviewed at length by the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the uh, he was. Um, he was. The thing that I found striking about the interview is that. Was
0: this the only time that you've ever
1: spoken to yeah, him? Yeah, I've never spoken to him again. I mean, like by and large, I generally don't. I would, I'm, I don't. I. My stories tend not to rely on the on the views of the creators of technologies mm-hmm. because I'm 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 not in a way I'm less interested in what the creators trying to do than what the users actually do. And those two things have some Venn, Venn diagram overlap, but not a complete one, which is to say users will very frequently do very weird things that the creators could never have foreseen. And the smart creators are the ones that follow what their users do, right? And realize, oh, we made the tool to do A, B, and C, but they're doing B, F, and L. <laughs> time now, to pivot. <laughs> time to pivot and do F and L, right. So, <laughs> But the one thing that was that, that was really fascinating about talking to him was that he clearly – he clearly understood that, um, that this phenomena of ambient contact uh, was extre- was likely to be extremely powerful um, if he could nudge people in that direction. And there was a resistance to it. Like when, when they turned on the news feed, a bunch of people really freaked out because up until then, uh, Facebook was a lot harder to use. You know, If you wanted to know what someone was doing, you had to actively go to their Facebook Page and look at it, and if they changed something, you wouldn't know unless you were you went back in and looked at it. So it was more it was more brute force. When they turned on the news feed, this was the first time there was like a a stream, a Twitter like stream uh, that would automatically show whatever anyone changed. And you know, people freaked out. There was a protest yeah. uh, group organized on Facebook, uh, and he but he was resolute in saying, "No, I actually think." People, A, get used to this, and B, they'll like it. And he did that a lot. And that it, that's exactly Often. right. I mean, I think that was really interesting about that interview was that I got a glimpse at what was to be his modus operandi over and over again, which is to say, I'm going to change this, and you're going to actually like it. Now – what was the
0: steve jobs quote Um, i'm giving people what they don't know they want
1: that's right and you know or madman don draper you know like (laughs) like don't don't ask me don't ask the people what they want let me advertise it and then then you'll see what they want basically Uh now the the i think the thing that's happened with facebook though is that increasingly the things that they that they nudge people towards are are things that serve their business model right like they're they're sort of Pushing them to types of engagement that are that are less about does the audience really really want this, and more like will they tolerate this, and will it increase their engagement? The, the danger even, of a even it, company. Even if it yeah, even if it kind of maybe degrades their, their immortal souls, right? Sure. You know. Um, well,
0: there there's there's so many things in this article that I think everybody should check out. Um, there's a bunch of cameos from people that have kind of exploded since you wrote this uh you know. sure
1: um uh, zeynep tufecki uh first time um first time she'd ever been quoted in the new york times mm-hmm. uh, um brilliant brilliant uh, uh thinker really uh, one of my favorite writers and dana boyd a uh, fantastic uh, writer on technology um uh there's there's just there's a whole bunch in there yeah
0: laura fitton ben parr yeah uh, i mean half a dozen other folks but I, I think that, uh, and people should check it out because, I mean, it's like a time capsule. Yeah. You, you write twittering instead of tweeting. you yeah,
1: exactly. It's great. <laughs> it's like, and the, the twitters <laughs> that people do are, uh, I mean, the, it, these it's, young people do, are, are it holds strikingly It really well, though. It really does. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: it's it's kind of funny because you get both sides of it. You know, some of these things are so clearly outdated and some of them are, are so clearly evergreen. Yeah. Um, but we're going to put a link to this in the show notes so everybody can check it out.
2: And be careful when you read it because it will make you a Twitter user. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of whatever else you want you will we haven't
0: we haven't actually seen that yet on kyle's side um i looked today. but uh and then then one one last question sure. uh beyond before we get to like the fun segment stuff yeah um but you know i i you talked earlier about how your your twitter username is pomeranian pomeranian 99 and um you know you did that on purpose mm-hmm. uh because you wanted to you, there's a great article from alexis madrigal at the atlantic that uh you know, you wanted to keep this dissonance between, um, you know, your your, yes, your, yeah, yeah, yourself and your your public life, and um, but you also, I that that led me to thinking a little bit more about it because you're married to a pretty public figure, sure, who yeah. who didn't change her name. That's right. Um, which you know could have been for a million reasons, but I'm wondering if one of those reasons wasn't that she wanted to keep her public identity and like not have to transfer followers or anything like that.
1: Oh, but, interesting. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I. I I don't actually know. You would think I would know, right? I'm married, to Emily. Uh, <laughs> I think she just picked Emily, Emily Nussbaum because she um, she uh, uh, she was just experimenting with Twitter at the beginning. She wasn't sure she would like it. It turns out mm-hmm. that she is enormously an amazing Twitter user. Yeah. She has a passionate follower uh, followership because she's just she's just you know very witty and funny and convivial. Um, uh, so I don't know why she. I mean, I think I think she just generally, you know, her name was there, and she felt like it would it would yeah. be useful. I do have Clive Thompson. Yeah, no, you you mentioned I, that. I, I, I do actually have Clive Thompson as a private account. I don't use it. Um, and there was this fascinating moment when I was um, preparing the, uh, the 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 sort of dust jacket for my book, and it's got like the little photo. Clive Thompson, and it says, you know, in capsule who Clive Thompson is. Anyway, it's Clive Thompson, you know, as a journalist, he writes for the New York Times and Wired, he lives here, and he <laughs> is what on Twitter, right? Yeah. And so the, publish, the publisher and I are like, so <laughs> he's like, are you really going to be Pomeranian 99 on the jacket of your book? At that point in time, you know, um, I I didn't have a lot of followers, but I probably had maybe seven or eight thousand or something. It's enough. And, and uh, enough, yeah. And um and I wasn't sure that I could get Twitter to switch it over. I mean I think I probably could have got Twitter to switch it over. I I, I if I if I if I'd politely asked them. But I had them I made the decision that it was more interesting to stay with this crazy name. Yeah. Uh, uh because it was sort of funny. Uh it, I've had it for a long time. Uh I use it everywhere I go. I mean that's what I am on Instagram and stuff. Um, I, I've
0: just been thinking on this forever because uh Jared Cohen and Eric Schmidt wrote a book about it was called the new digital age, and and they mentioned at one point that parents are starting to buy domain names for their kids. Yes, that's because, right. Because you know that kind of real estate is just impossible to get nowadays. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. So that's right.
0: It, it, and even that is affecting how people are naming their children.
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, do you you pick a name that's easy to Google or hard to Google? Right. You know, yeah. If you want to be, if you want the kid to be invisible, you pick a very common, you know, you know, like you know, if they're you know, p- pick the name Muhammad and a really. Uh, absolutely common name uh, uh you know in in the middle east and no one will ever find them or you, or, <laughs> or you could be like john campbell yeah. uh you know if you want a western name that like nobody you know nobody will notice john smith you know there's a million of them basically you know whatever the most common name is in your culture go for it and you're fine
0: i love it uh, so.
2: which way did you guys come out in that personally now that you have two small kids two small
1: kids yeah we went with uh we went with pretty common names i guess you know one of them one of them is uh is is uh is gabriel and the other one is zev uh and gabriel's pretty common around the world zev's pretty common uh uh in israel uh and, so uh, you want google invisible yeah uh, well no i mean i guess they're, they're probably they're, they'll probably be findable i guess if they want to be i mean it's you know it's hard to say exactly what what googling will look like uh um googling will look like 10 years now, when they're in the, in the mm. working world, you know, maybe, maybe there'll job. be some, maybe there'll be something else we have to worry about. Probably. I mean, the one thing I've also realized is that after writing my technology for a long time is the things that we, the, the things that we worry about most, so, uh, the things that we should worry about are often the things we don't really realize we should worry about, you know, like, like stuff, Things surprise us, you know. We get real hot and bothered about some aspect of technology, and it turns out just not to be a big deal. And in reality, the things that we should have been thinking about are like super invisible, yeah. right? Um, you know, like
2: uh, what comes uh, to mind for you?
1: Well, you know, there was there was this huge there was this, you know just big panic about you know quote unquote narcissism of young people because of social media, and you know it all hung on this kind of one study by Jean Twenge, which is actually a pretty good study, but like was is really just out there on its own. And she wrote a big book about it off at claiming that there's a massive narcissism economic and it just doesn't really seem to hold up to scrutiny. Um, and in fact actually there is there is no there is no trope more common in the history of media than a new form of technology will make kids narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Whether that was cinema, whether that was, you know, the you know the um, the, the gramophone, whether that was a telephone uh, inevitably, communic- shifts in communication technologies make people think that young people will become more narcissistic. It's more reflection of generational cohort issues. People in their 40s and 50s are insufferable about young people, but they tend to control media, so they say crazy stuff, yeah. talk smack about people that are younger. So, uh, so anytime, so all the narcissism stuff is just you know that's just stuff and noise. What are, you know? What's something that's actually more you know sort of invisible? Um, I would argue recency. So recency is a psychological tendency to think that what is happening right now is the most important thing. You know, uh, it, It's why we have trouble planning for the future. It's why we have trouble understanding what happened in the past and using that as a lesson to learn from. And I would argue that one of the great problems of social media has been the reverse chronological structure of almost all of it, which means that when you log in, it shows you what is happening right now. And in fact, actually in Twitter, it's really kind of hard to go back more than a couple of days yeah. like you know you pretty soon you're going to break the javascript you know that's holding that that crufty thing together like it's in, it's really really hard you know if if you want to read what i wrote on july 9th 2009 how are you going to find that it's gonna, not it's not it's that gonna easily you, yeah it's going to take you, you a really long time you could sort of you can sort of hack the url and figure it out but like they have created a structure that is all about telling you constantly that what is happening right now is the most important thing. Don't think about the past. Don't think about it. Think about right now. And this to me has, an, has very deep epistemological and psychological and philosophical implications that trouble me because, you know, we, tr- we, we struggle with recency long before media came along. You know, we're very, you know, you know, fight or flight instinct. We're very focused on what's happening right now. And yet, you know, if you think about every single major problem humanity faces – it calls for long-term planning and sort of, you know, paying respect to the past to make sure we understand how we got in this pickle. Whether that's global warming or you know whatever, or or um, or the, the arguments that are happening now. The Black Lives Matter movement is deeply rooted in like you know generations, generations of racist policies that most people don't even hear about because they're not taught the history, right? You know, so. Um, so recency to me is a real is 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 a much more subtle and dangerous issue than anything to do with narcissism or, or you know selfies
2: is this the next book? Oh no, no, my next book it feels like the yeah next yeah book. no
1: i you could write a book about it but uh, um but it's not. No, my next book is all about... Write your column about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, I think... Did I, well, it's in my book. I don't think it's... Yeah. I have a section on it in my yeah, book. No, you've,
0: I've, I've, I've heard this one
1: before. Yeah, I don't think I've written a column specifically about it. I, I might one of these days. Um, no, about the next Nine years from now. What? Nine years from now. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll come up with a great, great, great statement on recency. Um, the, uh, you know, actually, sorry, let me say, I did try to write a column about it. Uh, is this one of them that didn't make it? Well, yeah. What happened was that I was I was waiting for someone to really try and tackle recency um, technologically, and one of the things when Medium first started was that Evan Williams talked about how he was trying to move away from reverse chronology. He was trying to figure out some way that the Medium interface would um, be as regularly showing you awesome things that were two years old than just a thing. And the truth is I don't think that it was a great idea and I think he was yeah. right about it but it never really it emerged. It's it's a it's a reverse cron. The, it's a the, reverse cron. The, the
0: only yeah. the only thing that I can think of that did work was uh and even this is just because, you know, it's a cool like little pick yes. but like time hop or the Facebook totally. memories or something. Yes. yes, huh. the, Yeah,
1: th- those are pretty good, but I'm thinking more about like like some form of media or social media that, that, that does not use reverse cron as its central organizing principle. Yeah. No one has tried to move away from it. So I when real, I realized Medium wasn't doing that, I shelved it because, again, I try to write – I try not to write prescriptively. I try to write descriptively. I don't sit around saying here is what everyone should do because I might be wrong. Uh, um, you know, that's a different – or that's a different type of writer, frankly. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, obviously, I say things that I think should happen, uh, but but I don't make it the focus of my journalism. I, I try and say, well, so what is happening and how can I help you understand it better? So I'm keeping that in my mind. If I ever see anyone really try and do it, I'll realize what it is they're trying to do and I can bring this framework to talk about it. But that might happen two years from now, might happen nine years yeah. from now, might never happen. Uh, well, there's um,
0: a lot of – I mean even today uh, – I think it was Perseus got bought by Hachette, mm-hmm. um, and one of the big selling points for for Perseus was that uh, they have these like perennial sellers and, and this crazy awesome backlist. Yeah. Whereas Hachette is you know basically relying on yes. be- new releases and bestsellers to make money, um, which is you know not exactly what you're talking about because it's not really like a form of media. But... No,
1: it's really it's related to it. I mean, like the whole the, you know the long tail is similarly related to this idea yeah. that that things. Things can stick around. I mean I think one of the reasons why I sort of have – I sort of believe that, you know, uh, um, that non-recency focused media uh, or at least something that, that, that tries to in addition to give you the – and here's the the, the the new stuff that's also focused on like stuff that might be awesome that's older. The reason why I think I have faith that people would actually respond well to that is because one of the great joys of, of, of being a magazine writer in the um, – in the age of the internet, is that before the internet came along, and I, I wrote magazine pieces before there was magazine websites, here's what happened. You, you you toiled over your piece for months. You wrote it. It came out on the newsstands. People talked about it. Friends said, hey, that was great. You got called on the radio to talk about it. And then one week later, if it's a weekly or a month later, if it's a monthly, it goes off the stands, and that's it. Yeah. No one remembers that story existed. It is Gone, right? No one will ever ask about it again. No one will refer to it again. It just went into the memory hole. And then suddenly, you know, like by I don't know, probably the early aughts or the, there, maybe by 2000, 2004, a lot of magazines are regularly putting their stuff online. And I start noticing that the same thing happens: it publishes, and I get a, a big bump of people talking about it. But then, then it sort of just continues on forever. Like, you know, five months later, a year later, two years later, three years later, someone will post about it and I'll wake up and there's a whole bunch of tweets, people talking about it again and we're having a new conversation because those things don't go away. And that's why I think that media that was not recency focused would actually be, you know, I think there's a constituency for that. As a modality built in, so we'll we 'll say maybe i 'm wrong you know i mean yeah. like like i said i 'm not i'm less i 'm less interested in advocating for the way things ought to be than recognizing using these long term pattern recognition skills that i 'm trying to sort of develop to help me see what 's happening when it finally happens
2: so what is the next book about
1: the next book is all about the the way computer programmers think it 's about the um, kind of the what type of person is attracted to computer programming, and and what does doing it for 10 or 15 years? do to them, you know, like how does it change the way you look at the world, right? Um, so, you know, what are the what are the psychologies, the cognitive styles, the personality, um, the worldview, the politics? What are all these things that go into making someone a really awesome programmer? And uh, and you know, in the same way that, like, if you if you if you talk to a surgeon after twenty years, they are like a total surgeon. Like, you know, the, the it's an, it's affected the way that they look at the world, way they socially deal with people. Same thing with a lawyer. You talk to a lawyer is thirty years into their career. You you know, they are like lawyerly in every way, and so. I'm I'm really fascinated by this because programmers are incredibly central to the way we live our lives right now. They're building these everything I've written about for 20 years has been about a software tool that somehow tweaked or changed the way people express themselves and the way they relate to one another. And those were decisions that were made by designers and often by computer programmers themselves. So, you know, in, in the same way that like, you know, Robert, you know, Carroll wrote this wrote, you know, the definitive book about Robert Moses, who is the architect you know, the public architect the the, the, the not architect, the city planner, that basically you know transformed New York by changing its physical structure and by changing the physical structure he changed the way people live inside New York right you know uh, that 's what programmers yeah. are today they are the architects, the urban planners, the designers of our intellectual, our social, and our economic lives, and so I think it 's really interesting to get it and people. People don't know anything about how these guys, or they're mostly guys. Uh, although I'm going to be talking about why they're mostly guys, which turns into be an interesting question. Really? So yeah,
0: that, that's something that you've kind of figured out.
1: I haven't really figured it out, but I'm, but I'm going, I'm going to try to figure it out. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm going to reporting the heck out of it. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, historically, computer programming was entirely female at the beginning. I mean, the first programmers were almost exclusively women. Men thought it was beneath them. Uh, they built the machines. That was the manly thing to do. The programming was just. Like you know typing Uh, um and then you know still up until the 1980s you have you know computer science programs 40 50 percent of the graduates are women it's not until the 90s when the money really comes in that suddenly it plummets down to the point where it's like you know it's in the it's in the middle single digits it's like 18 percent now um so that you know that that's a that's a weird transformation right you know that the it went from like you know, almost all women down to a tiny rump, and that's a, that to me is a super interesting question. Where, where, something... where are
0: you at now? Is this five I'm just years starting. away?
1: No, no, I'm just starting. Yeah, that's okay. not five years away, but I think I want to get it. I want to get it written in the next year, year and a half. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm diving deeply into the research. I'm interviewing some of the world's most talented programmers, uh, in addition to just some of the ones that are just every day, like the guy, you know, down. The, the, the hallway from you in the in the cubicle that makes your login page for your mm-hmm. company like you know so I'm I'm interested up and down uh, different cultures different you know different parts of the world chi- China um, you know uh, um, uh, parts of Asia Latin America uh, I'm having a lot of fun looking at the kind of different the different you know forms of it right because you know someone who you know programmers you know are very different in a way like you know someone who basically designs like a app A phone app from scratch by themselves in the dorm room is very different from the person who shows up at a Wall Street firm whose job is to take these databases that contain Fortran code going back to the 1970s surrounded by these you know Dyson sphere layers of, of crazy stuff that's being thrown on top that constantly breaks leaks and they have to go in there and fix. And they're looking at these inscrutable messes of code written and rewritten by four dozen people over 30 years. That's a completely different world and they're they're almost more like plumbers in a way or something like that. So, I'm having fun looking at all these different, you know, different different areas. They're all they're all very very smart and interesting people. I mean, they they're, you know, programmers by their own admission have many blind spots, things they don't understand about the world uh that everyone else completely gets, you know. Um so they they can often they can often have their own, area, you know, areas of you know, sort of ignorance, but they're all they're all smart. In yeah. some way, like there are, I've never met really dumb programmers, so it, it's a it's a it's a super interesting book to write.
0: Yeah, and it's a crazy world. I mean, there's a story recently where uh, you know the programmers at Facebook or the engineers are you know uh, scrubbing off the Black Lives or Black Lives Matter um, yes. from the ground. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. And then you know, in the same year, you have Paul Ford's you know fifty thousand word yep. Bloomberg piece on how a computer
1: works. Well, and uh, and and also there's like a there's, yeah, it's very it's a very creative sort of it's a very creative uh um thing programming and um it, it, in many ways and a lot of them you know tell me this when i talk to them over the years like it it's 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 maybe closest to like writing poetry right like where you're trying to like you know be as efficient and economical in your use of of language of code as possible um because the bigger and messier it gets the harder it is to understand to fix you know programmers really revere someone who can just, you know, take something that is flabby 70 line thing and just do it in like four lines. And it's just, oh my God, how do you do that? So yeah. there's this, there's this, there's this sort of joy in the, um, in the art and craft and creativity of it. That's a lot of fun to get into. And that's going to be part of the challenge of the book is showing someone who doesn't know anything about programming, you know, what goes into the, the, the leaps of brilliance that makes someone like a truly amazing programmer.
0: So, Clive, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Uh, you're, you know, one of my favorite writers. Thank uh, you. It was fantastic
2: to revisit some of the older articles with you.
0: I enjoyed it a lot, too. It's a great conversation. Um,
2: and people can find you on Wired every month, right? For the yeah, yeah, every
1: future. month at Wired. I write regularly for um, uh, for the New York Times and for Smithsonian. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at uh, P- pomeranian ninety nine. <laughs> Uh, and you can find my blog at collisiondetection.net.
2: This episode is produced by Kelly Harrison. The music at the top and the bottom is by Ryan Dan, also known as Holland Patton Public Library.
0: You can find him online at com. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes on tinyletter at tinyletter.com slash You can get us on SoundCloud, Medium, Instagram, LinkedIn, and wherever social media is sold. Uh, We want to thank Clive Thompson for being our guest this week on the episode, and we'll see you all next week with Bajon Steven.